as a nonprofit leader, I know you have a whale of a time trying to prioritize. I've been there. Everything feels equally important, right? The donor who's all about needing that thank you note. The grant proposal due at five o'clock. A client who will be homeless if the check from your organization does not arrive on time. I kind of think of you all as jugglers. And I don't think you believe you can limit the number of balls you juggle. People keep throwing them at you and you just keep trying to juggle. All the while, you know something's going to drop. It's inevitable. But what if it's an important one? Often it's a big and important ball that drops because you have not had time or been able to prioritize. I know it's hard and that prioritizing isn't necessarily your superpower. So today I wanted to try a different angle. I thought, what if we reframe the conversation and talk instead about developing good habits? This led me to read this book that my guest has written. And I really thought to myself, you know, I think a conversation with B.J. Fogg could really help. He's written this book. It's called Tiny Habits. Sounds kind of manageable, doesn't it? It's based on 20 years of research and his experience coaching more than 40,000 people. Tiny Habits cracks the code of habit formation. A coach who believes in the power of developing habits. Tiny ones. I'm convinced that learning from our guest today can really help you. It's definitely worth a shot. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. BJ Fogg founded the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford University. In addition to his research, BJ teaches industry innovators how human behavior really works. That's a big job. He created the Tiny Habits Academy to help people around the world. He lives in Northern California and today is coming to us from Maui. You can learn lots and lots about him at bjfog with two gs.com and visit tinyhabits.com to learn about his New York Times best-selling book, Tiny Habits: The Small Changes That Change Everything. BJ, it's really nice to have you here to share your insights with nonprofit leaders who are hungry for tools to be more effective in their work. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, John. I'm super happy to be here, and I will try to be as helpful as I can be. <laughs> so here's the setup. Folks listening today run nonprofits large and small. They're CEOs, mm -hmm. they're board chairs, fundraisers, communications folks. They are up to their ass in alligators every single day. There is a fierce passion that drives their work and also a sense of urgency. It's often really hard to know what to do first. And for sure, self-care falls to the bottom or off the mm. list. Mm. So I hope you can help. Um, let's take this phrase, tiny habits. Now, tiny yeah. is a relative term, right? You, tiny in and of itself 
it has to be put into the context, right? It's only yeah. relative to things that are like, not tiny. Yeah, like so, Pluto. We consider Pluto to be tiny, but it's not really tiny. It's just relative no, to all the other. It, exactly. So when you talk about tiny, what do you mean? It, you, you scale the habit back to be so small that it doesn't take any real willpower or effort and you can still do it on days when you're tired or sick or just not in the mood. For example, um, if you want to drink lots of water, drinking a full 16-ounce glass of water is not tiny enough. I've learned from my research. It might be simply taking one sip, or maybe the habit is just filling up the water glass. So even if you're not in the mood or whatever, you can t still take a sip and so on. So part of the, uh, the breakthrough here is not focusing on the size of the habit, but the consistency. And you can achieve the consistency in part by making it really, really tiny, just so simple that you don't have to tap any willpower or discipline to get it done. So we were um, uh, watching your TED Talk, um, and you were talking about uh, doing one push-up after you go to the bathroom first thing in the morning and you now probably are up to like 4,000 push-ups a day. <laughs> um, uh, it works, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a, it's something about you building the habit on top of something you already do. Yeah. And it's not just me who's uh, done that. Yes. I started sharing a little embarrassed to start sharing, you know, one of the habits is after I pee, I will do two push-ups. It's actually two. If I want to do more, I can. This morning, uh, I did eight. Sometimes I'll do 15 or 20, but I was only in the mood to do that many, and I stopped. I went good for me. There might be uh, later this afternoon, if I'm in a rush, maybe I just do two and I move on, but I'm keeping the habit alive. So again, it's about the reliability, the consistency. And when you want to do more, you do more. But when you're not up to it, you just do the minimum and you congratulate yourself and you move on. And yeah, push-ups or squats or um, I change it up sometimes, Joan. Right now I'm working on really deep knee bends to go down into like a, a sitting squat. And so I'm doing some of that instead of push-up. So it, it depends on, you know, what once you design a habit, it doesn't always have to be the same thing all the time. It's uh -huh. uh, like, like you saw in the book, I talk about habits like a garden of plants. You don't always want the exact same thing. You want to evolve things over time as your needs change. And that's what I do with this. You know, the after I pee, I will do two push-ups. Sometimes it's I'll do two squats or I'll stretch in this way. But it's a moment to uh, do something for my body. Yeah. I'm curious. I'm always curious about how people find themselves where they are professionally. And so I want you to imagine that you're at your Thanksgiving table and you're 10 years old and you have that, you know, you have an aunt sitting at the table. It's just one of your favorite aunts. And she asks you, so BJ, what are you going to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you're 10? And does this, what you do, bear any resemblance to the 10 thing? It's so funny you would ask that because I probably would have told Kathy, I want to be a psychoneuroimmunologist. 
And I didn't really know what that meant, except for it sounded cool. And it sounded like it had to do some with science and some with making people healthy and some with something unexplainable, human psychology. And so I would have said psychoneuroimmunology was my thing. And my Aunt Kathy would go, oh, of course he answered that way. <laughs> um, is your, uh, now, of course, I need to know about Aunt Kathy. Is, is Aunt Kathy still with us and still a part of your life? Yes. Uh, so, yes. yeah. So, so Kathy now knows of your, who you have become and what kind of work you do. Does it surprise Aunt Kathy or does she say that makes so much sense? <sighs> yeah, it's kind of an awkward question, Joan. I feel very fortunate. Um, I, I think she would say, BJ, we've always expected big things from you. Good yeah. for you. And that's yeah. kind of hard to say because yeah, you know, creating the Tiny Habits Method, getting the book out, helping people change um, is important to me. And um, and I think it's kind of a big deal, honestly. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think growing up, I was a little unusual. And I've come to find out that people were expecting that they did expect me to do something kind of significant. I'm not sure yeah. they knew exactly what it would be. <laughs> I love that, but that's an okay thing. It's not an awkward, I I, I didn't mean it to be an awkward question. I just, I'm always curious about people's trajectory because it's always, it's, it's part of the sort of the narrative of the guest, right? It's like, what's your story, right? Um, And, um, but, but you said, I like this notion of how people change. I mean, it's an interesting thing when I think about it, BJ, because most of the people who are listening to this podcast are in the business of changing something, right? They might be trying to change, I don't know, let's pick a few things. Uh, People's attitudes towards the homeless, right? They might be trying to change uh, legislation, um, right. So, so all of these folks, you know, I spent a decade working in the LGBT movement, trying to change attitudes and opinions, um, hearts and minds about who LGBT people were as a means to end discrimination based on homophobia, transphobia, et cetera. So we have people who are in the business of change, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, And I find in working with my clients that it can be hard for them, they themselves to change, right? But I think there's probably a, there's probably a distinction between that notion of changing the outside world and changing the inner workings of you. I'd assume that's true, correct? You know, it might be a surprise, Joan, but I just, everything for me boils down to behavior. Okay. So if you can figure out what behavior people might do to change the outside world, such as attitudes toward the homeless, you're on your way. If you can figure out behavior, what you might do to change the inner workings of yourself or somebody else, you're on your way. So the way I look at it and the system that I outline in Tiny Habits, and I call the system behavior design, okay, which is also the name of my Stanford lab, is you take any aspiration or outcome that you want and you there's a way to break it down into specific behaviors. And so for me, it always, I just see the world through behaviors. Like if you could get uh, anyone to do any behavior that would lead to water conservation in Hillsborough, California, where I live when I'm in California, who would do what behavior? 
to achieve the water conservation goal. So for me, it's always about, yeah, you got to understand what the objective is, the outcome, the aspiration. I'm using those as all the starting points. But then you, there's a process to figure out what is the, what is the behavior or the set of behaviors. And once you're there, then you can design for those quite readily. And some of those behaviors will be habits. Some of those behaviors will be one-time actions, uh, like creating a policy or making a promise or investing in some way. Um, and so I don't think it's oversimplistic to say this. Um, I, you know, coming from my perspective, I think it's the right approach. It's just every problem, however abstract it is, there's a way to break that down and figure out what are the behaviors? Who should be doing what? And once you get to that behavior level, then there's a systematic way to design for it. And it really gives a ton of confidence, Joan, when you know that whatever the challenge is, we're going to be able to figure out what the behaviors are, and then we're going to be able to design for those behaviors. Um, so here I, here I was thinking we were talking about nonprofit leaders and their own habits, but there's there's something quite big about what you're talking about here is that as a nonprofit leader, if you are trying to change attitudes about, let, let's just stick with the homeless for a second. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You, you can break that down. Would you help us a little bit? Like, think about that. If I, let's say that was my organization was to, um, to, you know, sort of, and yeah. the stigma that comes with homelessness or, right? Yeah. Like how, how might you as somebody who thinks about behaviors break that down? Yeah, so I would take that aspiration to end the stigma around homelessness and probably contextualize it a little more. Say, okay, is this among college students? Is it across the U.S.? Because doing it globally is probably a little too big. So let's say it's, let's say it close to home. Let's say it's college students at Stanford, okay? Okay. That we want to change college students at Stanford's attitudes toward the homeless. And then the next step is what I call magic wanding, where we imagine we have magical powers. We can get anyone to do anything that would lead those college students to do behaviors that would have that outcome. And this is a creative step, Joan. So you say, well... And I'll just give five off the top of my head. You know, magic wanted. Who would do what? Uh, college students would have dinner once a week with a person who is homeless. Mm -hmm. That would be one behavior. Um, college students would ask their friends and family to discover if anybody in their family or extended family has been homeless before and why. Um, Stanford would create a class entitled Better Understanding the Homeless and Their Situation. So that would be behavior number three. That's behavior. Creating a class is a behavior. Um, the, let's say, we're going to stick within Stanford. I'll give two more, Jim. I would have, um, have three homeless people in the area of Stanford set up a table in the, the main plaza where students walk by and, and they, the, the sign would say AMA, ask me anything, where the students could walk up and talk to the homeless people. And then I think third is have students do a weekend where they really um, experience what it is like to be homeless and hang out where the homeless are hanging out and they talk right. to them. So those would be five different behaviors 
Now, some of them would be impossible or not practical, but this is a brainstorming stage. Yeah, yeah. Later, there's a prioritization stage where it's like, well, which of these, I listed five, we would probably come up with 30. Which ones do we design for? And so then from those 30 potential behaviors, you figure out which ones are what I call your golden behaviors. So you don't design for all 30, you design for one, two, or three. And those are the ones you um, put into practice. So it's a process. It's a process. So it, it could be any topic. Uh, I, I bring up the water situation in Hillsburg because I did a 45-minute session with some um, civic leaders there. Right. And it just took off and it grew. And the, the, um, the, the, the process can, even though it doesn't take that much time to come up with a bunch of these behaviors and then prioritize and pick them, that might be an hour, maybe an hour and a half total your team aligns uh, on here's what we're designing for and the best behaviors really have surfaced to have the biggest impact on, in this case, helping Stanford students have a different attitude toward homeless people. I love that. um, And part of the magic wanding is being really clear about the change you want to see, right? Yes, yes. And I have a bunch of magic wands, John. Let me, yes. So here we go. Just just to emphasize the point. (laughs) I do these sessions. So I'm holding what? About 12 magic wands. Everybody gets magic wands. And so you're really drawing on the creativity and insight of a bunch of people to come up with all these potential things. And so, and then after you do the creative stage, then you do the more editing of like, okay, let's figure out which of these are the best ones for us to pursue. And there's more to the system, but that's how I think about all problems now, Joan. And so I've been doing this, oh, 15 years, um, maybe a little bit more than that. And just whether it's a personal challenge in my life, something going on in my class or research at Stanford, or... Uh, somebody from the civic sector or nonprofit or what have you approaching me, bam, there's a process for this. Um, so I, I also have a bag of things. I have a bag of plastic, small plastic elephants. And if I'm actually facilitating and I don't believe that people are really getting to the heart of the matter, I give them all one of these little plastic elephants and I tell them to throw the elephant into the middle of the room. Love it. I, that is great. That is so good. Um, yeah, it just sticks with you. Um, so a lot of times when people don't change, so let, let's shift back to the sort of the internal for a second. Um, when people can't get it together to develop a habit or prioritize, there's a lot that they, they get really... They, they they feel a sense like, I can't do this. I, it's my fault, right? Yeah. And you talk about in your book, which I kind of liked, uh, popular thinking about habit formation and change, I'm reading your book, and uh, feeds into our impulse to set unrealistic expectations. Um, uh, there's a whole issue of thinking that it's our fault and that it's the wrong mindset. So um, share with readers, so, so what's the mindset that really, that really helps? You talk about three particular things. Yeah, there, there's, there's various frameworks I can dig into, but let me, let me answer in this way, John. 
Yeah, go ahead. Um, first of all, pick an aspiration that you want to achieve in your own life. If somebody is telling you, oh, you got to lose weight and that's not your thing, don't pick that. You know, focus, <laughs> help, help yourself do what you already want to do. And that ends up being one of the biggest mistakes that people make when they do New Year's resolutions or try to change or read a, a book. It's like, okay, now I'm going to be able to somehow magically get myself to do something I don't want to do. And that does not work. So one, and I call it fog maxim number one, is help yourself do what you already want to do. And that means if you don't want to um, go running every day, don't pick that. If you don't want to meditate every day, don't pick that. There's other ways to achieve similar types of outcomes. And then number two is to help yourself feel successful. And even though that's four words, there's a whole bunch that goes into that. And part of that is to uh, make the new habit so small and tiny that you can always achieve it and feel successful. Mm -hmm. If you set yourself up for 30 minutes of meditation a day, however nice that would be to achieve, for most people, they really can't wire that in. And so you're really setting yourself up to feel unsuccessful. The key about feeling successful, Joan, as you read in the book and so on, is that's the emotion that wires in the habit. That's what creates the habit. It's not repetition. It's the emotion. Also, the feeling of success opens you up to other changes that go above and beyond the habit. So there's something really important about feeling successful. And in my coaching of over 40,000 people, and it was more than that, I stopped counting at that point. And this was personally <laughs> email. I mean, yep. it was hundreds a week for like eight or 10 years. Um, when people feel successful, their identity shifts. Oh, I'm the kind of person who you know, takes care of my teeth. I'm the kind of person who is grateful, which then can have a broader impact. Um, and then you, you, your perspective on situations change. Um, and then third, success leads to success. It really, and it's hard to describe this like systematically or scientifically, but there seems to be really something behind the idea that success leads to success. And what you're shooting for is not the biggest successes, but the frequency of successes. Mm. And it's and that to me was a, a really big insight, probably after coaching 10 or 20,000 people, is people can get, and I finally woke up to this, you know, I finally saw the pattern that even if it's, a, if it's as simple as flossing one tooth, if people allow themselves to feel successful, that emotion can be surprisingly strong and surprisingly potent in wiring in that habit and opening you up to other types of change. And so it seems like our brain doesn't really distinguish very well between a tiny success like flossing one tooth and a big success like running a marathon. Yes, they're different, but the tiny one is, that's where the kind of loophole is. It can be disproportionately big. And it's easy to achieve the tiny ones. So part of, and I don't think this is in the book, uh, part of what in helping people outside creating products and services, it's really help your customers, your clients, your patients experience success frequently. It's the frequency of success we're shooting for. And then if we turn that back on ourselves, it's like, how do I design my life or my routine or my day or my morning or even this breakfast I'm having with my family 
to have the most successes happen. They don't have to be big, but it's the frequency of the success that I would uh, advise people to shoot for. You're listening to Nonprofits Are Messy. Thank you for joining me today. In case you haven't picked up my latest book, during COVID lockdown, I took time from Netflix binging to rewrite my first edition of Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. I wanted to make sure that board and staff leaders had a new guide to help them to navigate a very different world, one where old rules don't apply and some new rules will be critical to thriving. This version is in paperback, and you can learn more about it at book.joangary.com. And now back to the podcast. The, um, you want to talk a little bit about what you call the fog behavioral model? I love yes. that, that, that to, to change your behavior requires motivation, the ability to do the things you want. And this, this model that you've created really seems to, um, yeah, I would love for people to hear just a, enough of it so that they say, yeah. I, I got to know more about this. Yeah, so everyone's probably heard about E equals MC squared. The behavior model is, is similar. It's B equals M-A-P. So B is behavior. And like John said, behavior happens when three things come together at the same time. Motivation to do that behavior, ability to do the behavior, and a prompt. And that model applies to all behaviors, uh, people of all ages and all cultures. It's a universal model. And... It's really fun to have kind of cracked the code on what it what comprises behavior. Once that came together for me in about 2007, that then laid the foundation for all the rest of behavior design and tiny habits. Uh, knowing that, so habit is a subset of behavior. You know, behavior is the broad category. So whether it's a habit, a one-time action, stopping a behavior, everything, all behavior types will come back to motivation, ability, and prompt. And you can analyze behavior in those terms or design. For example, let's say that right now I'm talking to you and I look at my phone and I'm like, oh man, I really shouldn't be looking at my phone because I'm talking to Joan. And if I analyze that through the behavior model, it's like, okay, I've got motivation, ability, prompt. Am I motivated to look at my phone? Well, maybe not, you know, a little bit. Do I have the ability? Yeah, because the phone's here. Oops, bad idea. And am I prompted? Oh, yeah, I left notifications on. That's the problem. So if I want to focus entirely on talking to you, Joan, and I want not to be looking at my phone, what I, I probably can't manipulate the motivation very much, but I can change the ability by leaving the phone in the other room, and I can, can change, the prompt, change the prompt, which is which is what I actually did both on my watch and my phone as I sat down with you as I put them both on the do not disturb mode. So, so you can look at any behavior, whether you do it or other people do it and break it down analysis, but then you can also flip it around and design for any behavior you want thinking, well, what is the motivator for the behavior? How do we make it easier? That's ability. And then what's going to prompt to remind somebody to do this? Interesting. Um, so we are having a conversation with BJ Fogg, and he is the founder of the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford University. He teaches industry innovators how human behavior really works. He is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. 
So let's, um, one of the things I worry about on behalf of my listeners a great deal is burnout that there is a passion and a fierce commitment in people who run nonprofits for obvious reasons, right? They're not selling widgets. They're changing lives. They're saving a part of, repairing some part of the world in ways large and small. And it's hard to distinguish the important from the urgent. Um, and I guess I have two questions. So I'll start with one is, is there an intersection between habits and this notion of your to-do list, prioritizing, and thinking about how to grapple with the things on your list and making sure that you're doing the right ones in the right order or tackling the things that matter most. And then I want to talk a little bit about how might one of my listeners use the B equals MAP to introduce self-care in a way that sticks. Awesome. Well, let's dive in. Um, Yes, I think there is a connection. The way I see it, there's a connection between habits and everything. (laughs) (laughs) We are uh, mostly driven by our habits. But when it comes to uh, prioritization or how we map out our day, I'm going to start with something that I know people are going to disagree with, but I'm going to stand by it. Go. As you are looking at And so there's a way that I track all my tasks and I prioritize every morning and so on. Um, One of the things that I strongly advise is have simple tasks. First thing in the morning, in your work morning, pick simple tasks that you can just knock off. Okay. Some people say pick the hardest thing and focus on that. I'm like, no, pick the easiest ones, knock off five or six of those. You build momentum. So you're building success. Success, success. 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 Five or six of those. So you build this, I call it success momentum. And that increases your both your ability and your motivation to tackle the hardest things. What you don't want to do is start with a really, like start your workday with a really hard project and hit your head against the wall over and over and over and over. And then like, okay, no, you want to do the opposite. Get the quick wins under your belt, a whole bunch of them. I have a way of marking them. The ones that are going to be really fast for me, I have a blue sticker. (laughs) And the blue means I can do this in two or three minutes. And then there'll be, um, you know, at the start of the day, okay, let me just knock off a bunch of the blue stickers. When I reprioritize midday, and sometimes my energy is flagging a little bit, then it's like, okay, I just need some blue sticker items. I just need to recharge. It's like, um, you know, sort of caffeine for your motivation. I just need to recharge. So what can I do that's really fast, but also somewhat important and just knock it off. So certainly creating the habit or the routine or the approach of prioritizing at least once a day, I do it at least twice. And then, bam, like it's like rather than have the highway on ramp being steep upwards, have yeah. the highway on ramp be going down, and then you just build this momentum, and that gets you into your day in a way that seems to make you more productive. So wait, I have a so I don't have blue stickers, and I have a, you know, I cross out things on my list, right? And um, uh, I sometimes do things. That I, that I didn't put on the list and I mm-hmm. add them to the list and I cross them out. So I feel a, f- and a greater degree of success. And I, I, 
My friend Kim does that too. And we think that we're both very peculiar for doing that. But Uh, I want credit. I want credit for getting one of my blue sticker items done just because I forgot to put it on the list. Why don't I just put it on the list and cross it off? (laughs) You're doing it exactly right, Joan. The, The maxim is help yourself feel successful. So if crossing something off helps you feel successful, that's terrific. That's awesome. I mean, that that maps. There's uh, So that's why I'm you know, double thumbs up on that technique of crossing things out. And there's probably a feeling you get when you cross it out. You might even like smile a little bit and go, bam, good for me. Yeah, I think that's a great practice. Um, so... Even though nonprofit leaders listening are probably thinking, yes, I, that makes sense. I don't, they might also say, I don't feel like I'm always in control of my time, mm-hmm. right? There's so many people that want to bite of me that I get up in the morning and I sit at my desk and I got a whole bunch of blue sticker items and then my board chair calls and um, our biggest donor has a gripe about something or an elected official wants me to do blah, blah, blah. And so there's this notion that I'm not completely in. So let me rephrase that. Does your model presuppose that I have sufficient autonomy of my time and schedule so that I can follow these rules that that work so well? No, (laughs) no, there's no magical way. Uh, It's a tough situation. What you're describing, Joan, is a tough situation. And it, it happens not just to nonprofit leaders. Like I had a meeting with uh, two of my Stanford lab members, but then I got an urgent call from my niece and I had to take the call. I've been waiting for five days for her to call me. So I couldn't do the meeting, but I made the right decision. So that happens a lot. There's no magical solution to that. I mean, there's some partial solutions. Um, and th- this isn't novel to me. It's you, you know, I put on my calendar, as part of my weekly planning, I go in and purposely... I just, I, so this is now digital. I put it in my calendar and I, I call it block time and I make it yellow. And so when I look at my calendar, despite like I had 40, 40 to 45 meetings every week for most of the month of April, it was insane. I'd have That's to insane. block the time and I would see the yellow segments coming up and it's like, oh, I can make it. So it's just, you know, blocking time. So you save your sanity and so on. And then other, so that's one step that's not completely novel. The other thing um, that I found to be really useful is to set boundaries of how people can reach out to me. Mm, what I don't allow, what I don't allow is pe- business people to send me text messages expecting a business response. And I, I will just say, hey, all business stuff I do through my email, email here. I save texting for family and friends. And for me, that's helpful because then there's one channel where these requests are coming in and it's actionable. When things come in in text, it's not that actionable for me. I can't forward it to my colleague, Stephanie, et cetera. So part of it is setting boundaries and just saying, yes, you can reach me, but this is how you need to reach me. So it fits into my system rather than breaking my system. And I think that might be a good general guideline for everybody is help people fit within your system rather than causing you to deviate from a system that's working. And sometimes it just requires a simple explanation and they're happy to do it. 
Yeah, I I think that there are so many modalities in which people can reach you. Like we had a team meeting and I've shared this with clients. I didn't actually think I was doing something in my own shop that really would work for other people. But we went through each kind of way in which you can communicate. And we're a virtual, we've even in the before times, we were all virtual, right? And wow. so we have email, we have text, we have Slack, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And what what gets what um, format of communication gets used for what things? So that we can, and we agreed on those together. So we can all say, so now if somebody slacks me with an essay question, right, I can say, it's, this is not a slack thing. And yeah. I just, that's yeah. it. I've, I've actually okay. eliminated it. Right. Yeah. And, um, and I do think, I do think that this blocking out time and, and recognizing that that's not some sort of luxurious, special time you're giving yourself, but that it may be the only time you get during the day to have some generative thinking that could lead to some innovation in your nonprofit. There's absolutely nothing luxurious about that. That's that's the difference yeah. between a, a good nonprofit and a great nonprofit, right? So uh, I think that these, the te- you know, the techniques in some ways are, are actually, um, are not, <laughs> they're not rocket science, right? But it is, I think, the, the, the piece that I'm really hearing from you, BJ, is about consistencies and success. Yes. And so... So, well, and Joan, can I add one more yeah, thing to get please, to the, please, please. the burnout issue? So, yes, prioritizing and everybody, not everybody, but there are different ways to do it. And I've evolved my own. Uh, I do things on a weekly basis, I do things on a daily basis and uh, in the afternoon, but then find those. And this might be in some ways what's behind your question or what I'm hoping is what's the smallest thing people can do to have the biggest effect on relieving stress and anxiety. And I'm a big fan of looking at what's the smallest thing with the biggest impact. For me, I'm just going to give a couple and it's different for everybody, but be thinking, what's the thing I could do within 30 seconds or a minute that substantially reduces my stress or redesign my environment? For me, I have I have musical instruments, especially the recorder. Remember those recorders and, and sure. we tortured everybody with his kids? I'm actually pretty good on the recorder now because I practice every morning and I'm pretty good at it. And I find that playing the recorder, and I think, Joan, it's the breathing mm-hmm. that I just I just do like a minute on the recorder. It doesn't matter what I'm playing. It recharges me. So it's that's very personal to me, but I know it works. And so if, you know, so the tiny habit recipe goes like this. After I'm feeling exhausted, I will pick up the recorder and play a few notes, which totally helps me. Another example that's not a habit, but it's redesigning your environment. So there are two ways to create lasting change. One is through habits. The other is redesign your environment. And those work hand in hand. Uh, One of the things that I'm really big into, John, is flowers and the power Uh of flowers. So here we go. Here's orchids. Uh, Oh, (laughs) wow. I actually, in my workspaces, I surround myself with flowers. Here in Maui, I just buy the orchids at the drugstore. In California, we have a bunch of roses and other flowers. I go out and trim and I arrange and so on. So I know for me that having the flower habit 
it's a big deal. It calms me. There's just something about flowers that work for me. And so um, once a week, I, I'm going to talk about when I'm in California, because that's when I cut and all that. I get the flowers, and then every morning I kind of rearrange and care for them. And then they're around me. And there's just something really, for me, very powerful about that. So the takeaways, right. find, the, find the things that work for you and, and implement those in your life. Yeah. And I think it, 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 what you've described is neither of those things take a great deal of time. No, no. I mean, all things considered, um, not a lot of time. Uh, the care and feeding of flowers, cut flowers. Yeah, you got to change the water, maybe trim the stems, but it's not much. But I even make that into kind of a refreshing ritual. Um, I see a, and this is, <laughs> I shouldn't be talking about this. I, I just see it as, it has a bigger metaphysical impact that here's this beautiful thing that, you know, came from the earth and it's passing. Its beauty will fade and it will die. But for now, I'm nurturing it. And for now, I'm appreciating it. And that kind of thinking then generalizes to other things, people, opportunities, classes, etc. So there's just something kind of spiritual about it for me, which I've never talked about before. So, um, so, so it's finding things, but you don't know exactly what's going to work for you until you try stuff. Yeah, and you just yeah. try stuff. And if it works for you, keep going. If it doesn't, then don't try something else. And so a big part of really achieving a great habit garden that helps you with burnout or helps you with creativity or productivity is to try lots of stuff and keep what works. And if it's not working, set aside and try other stuff. So it's, it's a, it's a discovery process. Yeah. And just I, because um, somebody else has the habit doesn't mean you have to have that habit. No, right. It, exactly. Just because everybody else has the Headspace app on their phone doesn't mean you have to get it on your phone. Yeah. Right. But yeah. yeah, I'm actually staring out my window at my my wife it, for her putting her hands in dirt in the garden is absolutely centering there's just no question now i get i get the total dividends of looking at roses and peonies and oh, nice. it's just it's so swell i can't tell you but i mean i think they see that you see that a lot even with um there are nonprofit organizations that get kids inner city kids building gardens and digging in the dirt and really that like that's very existential too in in, in many ways so um so i i totally get it I, there's two other, um, uh, one important and one um, uh, perhaps important and yet silly. Um, you talked to, did you talk about focus mapping before we hit the record button? Yeah, yeah. Does that, is that something you want to just sort of I would love to. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So the, the, and this is a technique I started working on 20 years ago, a, a way to prioritize I now call it focus mapping. I called it other things, but the name now is focus mapping. There's a visual way to sort things in two dimensions that is kind of hard to explain just in audio. So instead, I'll give you what the criteria are. Whenever okay. you have a big set of items, maybe it's uh, features for an app you're building or topics for a blog or people you want to hire, 
Whenever you have okay. a bunch of, or even tasks you need to do, and you need to prioritize what you're shooting for, or you're looking at three criteria, and you're trying to find the optimal one. Is it in, uh, let me contextualize it with, let's say hydration. I want to stay hydrated. There's tons and tons of ways to be hydrated. So I might come up with a whole bunch of different ways, like glass of water, um, this can of water, um, drink tea, etc. And then you look for what behaviors will have the most impact in whatever you're shooting for, in this case, hydration. And if I had picked like drink coffee, guess what? Coffee doesn't have a good positive impact on hydration. So take coffee off the list, but drinking mineral water is probably high. Next, it needs to be behavior that you want to do. Um, and then third, it needs to be behavior that you can do. So those are the three criteria. Whenever you have a big set of things, whether it's for hydration or physical movement or reducing burnout, after you magic wand a whole bunch of options, then you say, which ones are gonna be effective? Which ones do I want to do? And which ones can I do? And from there you find your golden behaviors and then all the other behaviors that aren't golden, you get rid of. And that's, that's, that's conceptual. I, I think that this idea of what are the small, I, I, I do think that we don't do a good enough job of assessing what's the, the smallest move I can make that can have yeah. the greatest impact. And, and I don't think we make that calculation enough. And years ago with one of my colleagues, David No, we named that idea. We called it the feather principle, the feather principle. Feathers, because they're so simple, but think of everything you can do with a feather. You can tickle, you can warm, you can decorate, you can celebrate, etc. So we called it the feather principle. And it, it's just all long been one of my obsessions. And it's one of the things, even with my students, when they're evaluating the class, I say, what would be the smallest change that we could have made that would have the biggest impact? And people give really good answers to that question. What was the smallest shift? What's the smallest change? What's the smallest thing somebody could do that would have the biggest impact on helping them think differently about homeless people? So that would be right. one way of just going right to an issue and say, what's the smallest thing with the biggest impact? So um, we're just about out of time. And before we hit the record button, I met two stuffed animals of um, BJ's and he met one stuffed animal of mine. And so we're going to share the stories of our stuffed animals before we go, because that's what grownups do. And exactly. it's going to give us, and it's going to give us both joy. So I'll start. <laughs> I'll start, and hopefully it will amuse you as you move on to the rest of your day, um, is uh, behind me. By the way, I, I wanted to say earlier, I asked you what your Aunt Kathy would have said you were going to be when you grew up. The reason that if you can see behind me, I have a vintage good humor man, a good humor truck sign. And that is what I wanted to be when I was 10 years old. <laughs> and the reason I did was because who wouldn't want to make everyone happy all the time, right? Like I that. ring my bell and people are just yeah. 
flying out of their houses, happy as hell to see me. Um, and uh, so I do like to think of, uh, I do like to think of myself in that way. So that's why that's up there. But Kermit the Frog is is my stuffed animal up there. I actually have another, I think I have another stuffed animal up there you might not be able to see of a Teletubby called Tinky Winky. Um, oh, yeah. But the one, Purple. yeah, see Yes. So uh, Kermit is up there because I believe he has the attributes that I identify as key for a um, an effective leader. Humble confidence. Uh, He can inspire a group of people. He can bring together a diverse group. Uh, He handles high maintenance egos very, very well. So there's a lot about Kermit for me that um, that really speaks to what leadership is about on the soft skills side. So now you, frog and monkey. Frog and monkey. So I think there are three reasons, Joan, that I have frog and monkey with me everywhere I go. When I travel, I bring frog and monkey. Number one, <laughs> I, I know. It's not, like, I, it's not like a creepy thing, is it? No, no, no. I'm like a minimalist traveler, but still, frog and monkey go. Uh, number one, when I tell stories like, hey, frog decided to change behavior this way, monkey thought this way. And it's really a good teaching tool because people can understand this versus that and use frog and monkey. So people for narratives. And so it's a really good teaching technique. So one, that, that's useful. Two, um, frog and monkey are, nobody expects a Stanford researcher to be playing around with stuffed animals. So I like uh, violating people's stereotypes, <laughs> like <laughs> provoking, like, you know, before I give a keynote, I put frog and monkey on the podium and people are like, oh crap, I thought this was going to be boring. And this dude walked up with stuffed animals. Yeah. And I'm going to tell stories about the stuffed animals. It's just fun. And people like fun. Third, and this is more just, you know, for me, psychologically, look at the cute smiles they have. Especially that monkey is adorable, actually. So so having these around me, whether it's in the hotel room or in my home office or whatever, I do believe, um, and I haven't done my own research on this, but having smiling things around you uplifts your mood. So it's part of redesigning your environment. I mean, if you're surrounded by flowers and smiling creatures, think how much that helps you. (laughs) So those those would be three reasons. One is serious and the more personal yes i like that and actually it's really interesting that he has not visited but most times i'm on zoom calls i have a um seven month old kitten who arrived when he was a year and he was a pound and a half he's now seven pounds and he plays fetch so he brings me something that i'm supposed to throw and i throw it and then he brings it up on the desk and he also has a tail that it looks like a feather duster actually and um he is endlessly joyful and he has no stress in his life. And so I can see him and it actually, it's sort of like you and those flowers. Like when Rafa is on my desk, like there's something about it that says either he's calm or he's clowning around or there isn't anything about Rafa for the most part that doesn't make me really happy. So, you know, you're right. The, The environment matters. And let, let me let me share an extreme example of this. So we haven't talked that much about habits and tiny habits, but the good news is it's in the book, all right? That's right. 
the, the flip side is your environment. And so that my example, again, it's, it's you change your habits and you redesign your environment. And those are the keys. You have two keys and those are the only two things you have. So tiny habits can tell you how to create habits. Redesigning your environment. I might do a book on that someday. But one example, it was about the year 2000, Joan. I was, I'd been in Silicon Valley, oh, I don't know, 12 years or something like that. And I was, everybody around me was super high-paced and stressed out. And then you'd go, there was a wedding I went to in Atherton. And it was just like VCs and saying, oh, oh, can I hire your students? It was just, it was about work and greed, not about the couple getting married. And that was the final straw. I was like, I, we got to get out of here. This is gutting my soul. So this is about 2000. So then we, my partner and I went up north and we found a home on the Russian River in a little town called Hillsburg that we'd never heard of before. But it was like, oh my gosh, we can be by a river. We can be out of this rat race of Silicon Valley. And we bought the home there and we moved there. We didn't intend to, but it was such a wonderful place to be that we gave up our place in Silicon Valley. We didn't, I didn't tell anybody at Stanford because I wasn't sure how people would respond, but I kind of had to save my soul. And I just couldn't be surrounded by people that all they thought about were startups and venture rounds and um, basically greed. Can I just call it that? Greed around me. And it was like, this is not because that affects you. And so I ended up in a community where people had no idea what I did. They didn't care. I was next to nature. And it was really a farming community. And essentially, and that was wonderful. So I, we radically redesigned our environment so we would have less stress and we would be surrounded by influences that were more about nature and connectivity and not just about making money. There's, um, uh, I won't go into the details of it and then we, I need to let you go and I need to go, but um, an exercise uh, that... Um, is part of a larger personality assessment. Um, But it asks you to journal for a week, really simply. Um, It's just called Love It, Loathe It. And the things you love to do. Every day you have to write down something that you did that you loved and something that you did that you loathed. And we had the most remarkable conversation about that. And part of it is about this notion that there are activities that fuel you and activities that deplete you. And that somehow or another during the course of your work life or even, you know, your personal life, that you can't, you have to, you have to navigate those. I mean, you're always going to have to do some things that deplete you, but you can't, you you have to make sure that there's always gas, enough gas in your tank to get where you want to go. And it's something to think about as you think about what you want to do for a living or where you want to live, for example, like you made a choice with your partner to go away from the things that were depleting you towards the things that were fueling you. And that's, um, it's being self-aware of that, even just by journaling it was really, um, really enlightening for, um, for my team to think about it. And, um, um, you know, hopefully when you build a team, you end up with some people are fueled by the things that deplete others so that you end up with a complimentary team. So, but um, uh, hats off to you for really understanding what fuels you. 
And I, I love that method. The takeaway, I think, for everybody, for you and me and everybody listening is there are ways to address stress and anxiety and so on. And they're not as hard as you think, but you got to take some steps and figure it out. One of the things I'm toying with, Joan, so this is, you may delete, you can delete anything I've said, but you may decide not to keep it is even though I'm surrounded by flowers in nature, whether I'm in Maui or in California, I still work hard. I still work so hard. And it was about a month ago, it's like, oh man, you need leisure. Uh, not just pleasure, but I called it leisure. And I started this practice of for 10 minutes a day, I would plan leisure into my life. Now, it didn't mean it actually happened but I would take 10 minutes to plan and think about it and what would cause me to feel relaxed and so on. And in picking 10 minutes, 10 minutes is less than 1% of your waking life. And I couldn't believe that was true, but I did the math. It's like, oh, it's well under 1%. So what you're asking yourself and what I've been asking myself is to take 1% of the time you're awake to think about leisure. It doesn't mean you're actually doing it, but you're planning it and you're thinking about what would I do? And a surprising number of those things become reality. So it's sort of this 10 minute, uh, I deserve to think about leisure and plan leisure into my life. I haven't named it. I haven't systematized it. You're the first time I've ever actually shared it. But the bigger point is there are ways to address the um, challenges in our life. The best solutions are often easier and smaller than we think. But you got to just start taking some steps and trying things out. And not everything's going to work. And if it doesn't work, set it aside. That's fine. And if it does work, double down, triple down, make it part of your life. I love that. Um, BJ, this has been really fun. I've really, I, I, your flowers are beautiful and um, your words are really insightful. And I appreciate both of them. And frog and monkey too. Do they have names? Yes. Frog and monkey. <laughs> 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 well, um, with I'm that, I say, uh, I say <laughs> we say so long to Frog, to Monkey, to Kermit, to Tele, to, to Tinky Winky, uh, and to all of you out there who are listening. Um, I hope some of this has um, given you some food for thought, some strategies, some ways of thinking about your day and your life and your to-do list, um, and. Um, that one percent thing that's that uh, that's I think that's pretty sticky so um right. with that said BJ thank you so much for joining me thank you um and for all of you thank you for all that you do to make the world better in ways large and small and we'll see you next time thanks so much for spending time with me today I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.